Good morning. Let's come back together, find our seats as we get ready to dive into Acts chapter 27. The good news is we leave Caesarea today. The bad news is the whole chapter is on the water, but, but we'll get to that. Um, I'm not much of a sailor. I haven't done a lot of, of ship stuff, but I do have an inflatable raft. That counts, right? And um, one of the places we like to use it, in fact, I think the only place we've used it is up in the Sierras at a place called Rock Lake. Um, it's a wonderful lake, and we can fish from it, and um, thank you very much. But one particular day we're out, Susie and I are out on the boat and fishing, and a windstorm comes up. And now keep in mind, this boat is a blow-up raft with no motor. And so... Um, the, the storm comes up, as can happen down that canyon, if you've camped there at all. Um, and the storm, the winds were blowing us away from the, the launch point. And so it's, it's not a huge lake, praise God. But, um, and so we start rowing, and I'm rowing, and after about a half hour of rowing, I'm getting tired. And um, we're like, okay, what do we do? We're not, because we've actually lost ground. We haven't gained ground, which tends to be a bad thing. The other side is just rocks and trees and, and all kinds of craziness. And so then we're rowing and we stop and we're trying to figure it out. And we watch as one of the paddles slips out of the grommet and disappears under the water. So now we are on a, a lake in a storm and we are trying by hand to paddle back against the wind and it isn't working now praise god it wasn't life and death because the the worst we were looking at is getting blown across the other side of the lake in a couple hour hike with all our gear back to find the cars but um as we're going as we're realizing there is no way we can do this on our own our hands don't make great paddles the paddles weren't working so our, our hands aren't going to work as we're doing that this nice young family in a boat with a motor comes beside us and says, do you need some help? So we said, no, we got it. No, just kidding. <laughs> Pride in me might have wanted to do that. But um, no, we're like, yes, we do. We, we threw them a rope and they ended up towing us back to the, the boat launch where our car was and all was fine and all were saved. But it was an interesting feeling out there, that helpless feeling of there was no way we could get back to our side of the lake on our own. Um, there was just no way that was going to happen because we were just being driven by the wind. And that's a, a silly example compared to what we're going to see Paul go through today. As Paul finally leaves Caesarea and, and he's heading to Rome under, under guard because he has appealed to Caesar and they're doing it by ship. And so Paul might be thinking, finally, God's promise that I'm going to go to Rome is going to come true. Actually, all the way in Acts 1.8, we have the promise that the gospel is going to go to the ends of the world. And Rome represented the end of the, the known world of the kingdom. And so Paul is thinking, finally, finally God's promise is coming true. I've spent two years in Caesarea. And we're going to find out very quickly that circumstances rose that were out of their control that threatened the whole thing that threatened to take them places they didn't want to go and, and, and did take them places they didn't want to go. And it's so easy to then think, okay, God, why? Yet again, 
your promise isn't coming true. Or yet again, you're not watching out for us. Yet again, I'm not sure how to get out of this. And Paul had to be feeling that at this point. Because I don't know if you've noticed, every week something threatens Paul. And God miraculously saves him. And it's sort of the same this week. So it's, it's again, the Hallmark movie plot is the same. And um, that's what's going to happen. But as we, as we see it today, I hope we see a bigger picture of who our God is. That our God is faithful. That our God will execute his plan. His plan cannot be thwarted even when we don't see a way out. I would bet every one of us in this room knows the feeling, okay, not of being on a lake and not being able to get back in, but knows the feeling of saying, I'm sort of done with things in life right now. I'm not sure how to continue. You know, as I, as I talk with people, I hear that often because the, the trials keep coming and coming and coming and the challenges can keep coming. And we're like, all done, I'm out. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. But God is still faithful. And one of the reasons why I think we have story after story after story is to remind us over and over and over again that God is faithful because we don't get it very quickly. And we doubt and we challenge ourselves in our faith and ask, where is God? And so we come today to Paul and we see Paul trusting in God's promise, trusting in God's plan even through a fierce storm. But then Paul taking the next step and exhorting others to do the same. And his faith now is spreading to others, which is a beautiful thing in the middle of a shipwreck. And all are saved. Turn with me to Acts chapter 27. As we look at the example of Paul and then make sure that we also hold to our faith and trust in God. And that we also can encourage others the same. Acts chapter 27 you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black one under a seat right around you. Under those racks, I think every other chair has a black hardcover Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that home. Take that with you as our gift to you so you have God's word. I think it's so valuable for you to open it up and see that we're not making this up, that this is actually the words of God's word. And so we'll be in Acts chapter 27, and we're going to get through the whole chapter today. And thank you for not laughing. <clears throat> but... Um, We are going to get through the whole chapter today, and so we'll move pretty quickly through what is a familiar story, a Sunday school story. I can remember it in Sunday school, and one that I think still speaks to us as as adults and encourages our faith. Acts chapter 27, and we'll, we'll take it sort of in the movements of the passage, and the first 12 verses set up the scene, set up what's happening, and, and, and really set up the, the storm that is coming. And so the point for point number one is Paul's trust in God did not eliminate wisely suggesting a delay, but the sailors didn't listen. Paul's trust in God's prom, trust in God did not eliminate wisely suggesting a delay. Sometimes when I say the word trust, we can think, cool, God's going to do his plan. I can do whatever I want and it won't matter. But what we're going to see in this story is wisdom. There's, there's God's plan and man's responsibility that partner together. That's through this whole story. And so we see wisdom coming into play here. So, so catch what's going on here. <clears throat> Verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, which is where Rome is, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship <coughs> of Adramatim, 
which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And so the setup is, okay, you appealed to Rome. We're going to send them, send you to Rome. And they find a ship that's going up the coast. And if we put that map up there, we'll, we'll get fun with maps today. Um, they are down here in Caesarea Maritima. And the, the ship is going to come up here and eventually make its way ar- around to these cities here. This is probably a small grain ship, probably sort of a, a port ho- hopper, they call them, or just stayed along the coast. But it's what they could have because the main shipping lanes went from Egypt up to Mira across like this for grain. Grain would come from Egypt, would come up here, and then the larger boats would come here and around to Italy. Um, because Rome had a lot of people, Rome needed a lot of food, and so the emperor had this whole shipping route set up. So they were going to take a little boat up and then probably catch a bigger boat from there. And so what's interesting here is a couple of just little little Easter eggs in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, sail for Italy um, and what we see here is that we're back to we language. And for those of you that have been following along, whenever... Luke in Acts goes to we language, he's probably along for that part of the journey. And so it looks like Luke is with Paul here. Aristarchus, who we've already talked about in Acts, and we see later in the epistles, um, who is a co-laborer with Paul, is along. In fact, later is in prison with Paul for sharing the gospel, it looks like. And so Paul's able to take a little bit of his company along with him, and they're heading for Rome. The next day we put in at Sidon, And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So that's this stop right here, um, Sidon or Sidon. And that was about a one day's journey usually. And so they would stop there, but in each of these ports, they had to unload and load. And that was not as quick as it is today, or it used to be today. Um, But so so that would be a few days. And so the... um, the centurion allowed Paul to go to shore, see his friends, see the church is what it looks like. Let them feed him and take care of him. So we already see that Paul is generating um, just a relationship with the centurion because of who he was and how he presented himself. And so he's given the ability to do that. We read on in verse 4, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And so they, they come up here, but there's, we think, some westerly wind or winds from the west. And so they come along here from Cyprus under the lee of, I had to look up because I'm not a sailor, um, but it really means sailing on the protected side of the island. So it's not a north, south, east, west. It's the opposite side from, from the direction the wind's coming. And so they, they used the protection of Cyprus to come up here, and then they're coming along the coast here um, trying to get to their next stop. It says, and we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. That's the first clue that this is not going to go well. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Again, lots of names there that we don't have to spend a lot of time, but Alexandria is down here, Egypt. They came up here, so that ship was a larger ship, would have come up here sailing for Italy, and they, they get on board another ship. Um, typical grain ships of the time from Alexandria 
were um, a little larger. And so if you picture this, this worship center, if you go from that wall to the back wall up there by the balcony, it, it would have been about that long. Um, as far as width, probably about two-thirds of the width of our, our worship center here. And so it's a, it's a decent-sized ship. This is not the 12 apostles fishing on the Sea of Galilee. This is a decent-sized ship. And so they were heading with tons of grain um, to Rome. And so that's the kind of ship that they are now, now put on. Verse 7, or verse 6, um, or 7, sorry. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sindus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. You got all that? Places you visited? So basically, they're coming up here trying to use this passage here. And this is Cygnus, Cygnus. They cannot get there, and the wind starts to blow them this way. And so they come to Crete, and again, the wind is now coming probably like this. And they use this as protection from the wind, and they get to this port at Fairhavens. But all this has taken time. All this has taken a lot of time. Verse 8. Coasting, uh, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near which was the city of Lycia. Verse 9, and that, so all of that sort of prep, the travelogue. Hey, this is where we went. And it's pretty impressive that Luke was able to record all that. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. And so again, we are not sailors. We live in Southern California. We don't experience this. But what was typical of trade routes of the time is the winter they would not run the ships because they would lose the ships if they sailed in the winter. And so um, the fast here is referencing the Day of Atonement, one of the, the, um, the Jewish um, festivals or, or holidays. And so the, the Day of Atonement was there, Yom Kippur, and usually you didn't sail after Yom Kippur until the spring. Um, one author wrote, a guiding principle of sailing was that it was dangerous from mid-September to mid-November and disastrous from mid-November to mid-February. At this point, the year they think it was, the Day of Atonement probably was late October. And so because it, it changes each year depending on the, the lunar cycles. And so we are already into the dangerous point, already to the disastrous before they end their journey. And so Paul here makes a statement of wisdom. And Paul had done a lot of sailing. We know that he had already been in a couple shipwrecks. And so Paul knew his stuff. He makes a statement of wisdom. And, and there's a debate. Is it wisdom or is it the Holy Spirit giving divine guidance? And I actually think the wording here implies both. Um, because he's very certain about it, and later he'll reference this. But the Holy Spirit allowed him to use his brain and say, look at the date, look at the weather, this is a bad idea, we should not go on, or there's going to be loss of goods and possibly loss of life. And so Paul speaks with wisdom here. Now, does this mean that Paul did not trust God? No. And again, this is a principle I want us to understand. Sometimes when we think of trusting God, we think of being reckless and careless. That's not trusting God. That's just being stupid. 
And so Paul here says, no, we're going to trust God. God is going to get us there, but he also has given us an ability to think through these things. We should not go further. We should stop here. And so this is now the the setup. It's not about making rash, foolish decisions, saying, I know God will protect me. It's about human responsibility with divine providence working together. And so then we see the, the result. Everybody listened and the chapter's over. Verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. This is not going to go well. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they would reach Phoenix. I love Luke's wording there. Maybe there's a chance they might live. A harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. And so they talk about it and the, the ship's owner and the pilot say, well, I think we can go a little further. It, it's, it's just a, a little bit further. There's a, there's a better port. Now, the owner had some financial reasons, too, because Rome would pay for certain. The sooner you could get it there, the more Rome would pay. And so there was some money on the line here. And so the push was, let's go a little further. Let's get closer to Rome. But also, um, the, the Phoenix's port was a little better, um, faced a little bit different direction, bigger city, easier to stay the winter there. And so they chose to go there to give us some, some ideas if we go, actually, we'll, we'll hit it in a minute because I think we'll hit it in the next verse. But Phoenix basically is up in here. And so they are going to try to get from here to there. Um, a very short cruise, actually, if the winds are in your favor and if the time of the year is right. Um, basically, it's just a three-hour cruise. Everyone 30 and over is like, I get that. Everyone younger, um, look up Gilligan's Island because there's a lot of similarities. But what's interesting is they chose poorly. They chose the wrong decision. God had given insight through Paul. God had given some wise counsel and they chose to go another way. Now, again, as we, as we think through wisdom versus God's will, wisdom versus God's plan, can we ruin God's plans? No, we can't. Can we make our role in God's plans harder? Yes, we can. Sin makes the, our role in God's plan harder or sometimes removes us, as we saw with the, the warning to Esther, sometimes removes us from God's plan, but God's plan will still happen. The gospel is still going to go to Rome. The question is, will it be easier or will it be harder? And because they didn't use the wisdom God had given and the counsel God had given, they are choosing the harder way. And, and, and it, it's just so important that we don't think of pursuing God's will and God executing his plans, that we don't think of those passively. And I, I've talked about this, but we are to be actively engaged in doing God's will and doing God's work as he leads us in obeying him, in serving him, in being part of what God is doing. When, when God called me to be a pastor, um, I, I, I had my four years of Bible college. I hadn't had seminary yet. And I had some choices. Could I wisely go to seminary, be prepared, know how to handle God's word, and be prepared for pastoral ministry? 
Or maybe since God was calling that and that was his plan, I don't do that and I just jump in and, and wing it. Which is wiser? And, and so now I'm not saying God never leads that way. For some of you, you're like, wait a minute, I know this story. And, and that's true. But God would rather have us use wisdom in following his plan. Me going to seminary wasn't questioning God's will. It was partnering with God's will and God's plan. And, and so, so I, that's one that I hear a lot from, from different people. It's like, oh, well, I, I shouldn't have to do that because God's called me to do this. No, God's called us to use wisdom as well. Um, when choosing a job, when choosing a spouse, when choosing a college, all those things, God's plan will happen, but he calls us to use wisdom and seek him for that wisdom. They didn't, and so that's why we have the rest of the chapter. Verse 13, and point number two, the storm comes and hope is lost because they do everything in their own power to save themselves. The storm comes, hope is lost because they do everything in their own power to save themselves. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Let me show you on the map again, because this is a very sad section to me. And the more I I looked at the maps and, and realized what they were going through, it just got sadder and sadder. So this is Fairhaven's where we left them. They were going to come along the coast here. And then you come up here north, and this is a little bit open. And then you come over here to the Phoenix Harbor. And they found a day where you had um, winds from the south. So winds were coming up here. So they thought, that's perfect. We can go along shore. The problem is, is once you get to this area, it's all exposed. And the winds start coming down from some high mountains here and whipping down through that channel, sort of a, a trough. And so what happens is they come along here. Again, no motors, Right? We're, we're back here in, in um, time of Paul. And they, they hit the wind here, and they have no way to get there. And the wind just starts driving them this way. And there is nothing they can do. They can't row against it. It's too strong. And so they, th- this whole section is, okay, what, what do they do? What do they try to do? When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, 13, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Quada, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. They would tow a little um, dinghy or a little rowboat behind, and so they got that up onto the boat um, because they, it was probably starting to fill with water. You risk it hitting the, the ship. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. And so get the picture here. Picture yourself on this boat. The winds are coming. It is tossing. It, you, there is nothing you can do. You can't fight the wind. Rough seas. People are probably sick off to the side. And, um, and you're just going out to sea. This is that little island where they were at least able to, to stow the rowboat. Um, but they're just going this way. The fear is down in here, which is where they thought they were going, and that's the direction they were going, That was known as sort of what we would call the Bermuda Triangle of the time. Boats didn't make it out. Um, There were lots of sandbars, quicksand, shoals, 
all kinds of things. And so hundreds and hundreds of boats were lost there. As a sailor, you know the direction you're being driven. You know what's out there. This is not a hopeful situation. So they start to do things like undergirding the ship. It means you take ropes or cables and you strap them around the ship and you strap them on top to try to keep the wood against the beams of the ship, to try to keep the ship from falling apart. They start to, sh- to store, stow the gear, throw some of the gear overboard. Verse 18, and, and they're just driven along, helpless. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they begin the next day to jettison the cargo. So it looks as if they're taking on some water at this point, and they need to make the ship lighter. They start throwing things overboard. On the third day, they sh- threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Maybe some of the parts of the, the mainsail. This is desperate, is what Luke is trying to k- tell us. They are getting rid of essential parts of the boat now to try to live. God's plan is threatened. The gospel to Rome is threatened. His promise to Paul is threatened. On the third day, they threw the tackle overboard, um, as we said in 19. 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And I, I highlighted that phrase because it's where they were at. It's one of the the realest phrases of this passage of what they were feeling. They lost hope. They lost hope of survival. They're being driven along, neither sun nor stars. That's how they navigated, so they had no idea where they were. They're two weeks in a violent storm on a ship that is, is soon or threatening to come apart, taking on water, and they're just trying to survive. And there is no human chance of survival in their mind. And what I love about this story is that's where God met them. When they finally gave up their own attempts, when they finally lost hope, that's when the next point comes and God steps in. And that's often where where we are. We have to reach our end so many times and trying on all our own things before we finally are truly dependent on God, before we finally are seeking God. Oh, that it wouldn't take hitting the bottom for us to get to that point. But that is where they are, hanging on for dear life, feeling like circumstances are driving them. The other aspect of this, which which I had never thought of until I was studying it, they're actually in this mess because of their own impetuousness. It's their fault they're in this mess, failing to listen to wisdom. But God still showed up and saved them. And how many times do we make just stupid decisions that lead us down paths that we're like, how did I get here? And so part of this is a reminder, God still sees that. God still wants to execute his plan. God is is still there for us if we will turn to him. And so we come to the next point, verses 21 to 26. Take heart. God reassures at just the right time. Take heart, God reassures at just the right time. God is going to reaffirm his promise to Paul regarding Rome. Paul had to be wondering at this point, maybe it ends here. And he's going to extend that promise to everyone on the boat. 
it, it's pretty incredible. And then he will use Paul then to encourage others to trust in the tempest. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. Sorry. <laughs> and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, a lot of people said he's not trying to rub it in here. He's trying to gain some credibility, but it is pretty funny. <laughs> um, so they, they haven't eaten in a long time. We're going to find out they had food, but two weeks of a violent storm, nobody wanted to eat, nobody had time to eat, nobody dared to eat. So they, they haven't eaten for two weeks. And so they're getting weak, and that can, that can go with the despair. And Paul stands up and says, yeah, yeah, see, I was right. God had given me wisdom. And I think that's more the tone than neener, neener. And so they're in a storm. And so Paul's having to yell this probably to the men. Verse 22, now, yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And so Paul here, God uses Paul to reassure, not just, he's not just reassuring Paul, he's reassuring the whole crew, take heart to, to gain courage, to not lose hope, but to continue to act. Take heart, there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, I'd be like, what? So we're not going to die, but we're going to lose everything. And then Paul explains what happened. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. It's the promise he had back a few chapters. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some islands. <laughs> it's preparing them. And, and what, what is interesting to me is that God shows up and gives encouragement in a lot of different ways here. And one of the ways that he encourages Paul is with his presence. An angel of the Lord showed up, appeared to him, talked to him. And so God shows his presence, his understanding, his care, even in the storm, even in the violent waves, God shows up. But I love the, the phrases Paul uses in verse 23. There stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And those, those are not throwaway phrases. Paul uses those because those are part of his assurance and part of his confidence in God. And the first is to whom I belong. And he says, I am a child of God. And, and the wording here is God owns me or God um, is, is watching out for me. It's like sheep to a shepherd. The shepherd owns the sheep and is protecting them and watching out to them. The word also can be used of a child to a parent. And not that parents, you own your children, but you are responsible for them. You are watching out for them. They are part of your family and your responsibility. And so one of the reassurances for Paul is, I belong to God. I am never outside his, his sight. I am never outside his concern. I am never outside his care. And even though it looks pretty bad right now, I'm going with God. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you belong to God. And nothing that happens to you will surprise him. 
Nothing that happens to you is out of his control and his ability to be with you and help you. That is reassuring to me. And honestly, that's a phrase I I had never really read in this passage. But for Paul, it was meaningful enough to say to the men, I belong to this God and he has my back. And then he adds, and whom I worship. And some of your translations say, and whom I serve. And so the idea here of worshiping and serving God is to recognize his sovereignty, recognize his deity. And so he speaks to to the God he serves as above all things and sovereign above all things. And what is more reassuring than to say, I belong to God and he does what he will do and never fails. They aren't saved yet, by the way. They're still being thrown in in the waves and heading toward disaster. But God reassures him that he will be saved. And so God reaffirms that promise, says, take heart. And we see that God is faithfully working. In verse 25, take heart, man, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. We sing a lot of songs about God's faithfulness today. God will always do exactly what he says he will do. Now, it doesn't say God will always do exactly what I want him to do. But God will always do exactly what he says he will do. And we can trust that. And that's what Paul reassures the men with. And he says, but we have to run into an island. The methods aren't going to be what you think they are, but God will save us. So God's presence reassures. He reassures that we belong to him. He reassures as we worship and serve him as sovereign. And he reassures as we remember his faithfulness. And so now we come to 24 and the scene shifts now from the storm and the reassurance and the losing of hope to, okay, what's going to happen? What's the actions that happen? And so in verse 27, trust and actions work together in God's plan. Very similar to point number one, where trust and wisdom work together. Now there has to be obedience with trust. If we don't act on our trust, it's not trust, right? And so, so listen to what happens in verse 27. Let's read what happens. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. And so if we come back to our map, which I know I have out of order in the slides, but the last map that we were there, thank you. You guys are awesome. So the winds now have blown them up here, and now they are coming near an island called Malta. And they don't actually know where they're at because it's been no sun and no stars and no moon. But the winds have just drifted them exactly where God wanted them to go. And because God controls currents. He controls the storm. And so in verse 28, so we took a sound, oh, they suspected they're nearing land. Um, one of the things about Malta there is you can hear the breakers from a long way off. And so probably they start hearing something different. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A fathom is about this long. Um, and that's how they define it as sort of fingertip to fingertip when you stretch out your arms, roughly six feet. And so they took a sounding, found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. This is not going the best direction. And fearing that, they, that we might run on the rocks, 
they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And so we see them, again, wisely acting within um, God's plan, wisely acting against God's assurances to try to save the boat and try to do what they could. They let down four anchors from the back because they want to keep the boat pointing forward to run aground. And so actually to follow what Paul said would happen is why they, they normally would put anchors off the front. They put them on the back so the boat doesn't swing around and it makes the next day possible. Now, so, so they, um, sorry, verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, this is a little, little side thing of some people that weren't trusting God. As sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And so the, the setup here is some of the sailors, some of the crew is like, we hear land. We're close to land. We have a better chance if we drop the boat on our own, go in, leave everyone else to fend for themselves. And um, there, there's, there's reasons for that, why it was plausible. They would actually, for the, the anchors off the front, they'd take the boat out and place them a little farther from the boat. And so they were lying to get away and to leave everyone else that weren't sailors or crew to fend for themselves. Paul said to the centurion, no, they need to stay. They need to believe that God will save us. Otherwise, you can't be saved. The centurion, this time, I think, learning from when he didn't take Paul's advice. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And that's a little statement, but it's a statement of faith. It's a statement of casting off their only way to shore, technically, and saying, no, we're going to listen to Paul, and we're going to listen to Paul's God. 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, today is the 14th day you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Again, this is an incredible obedience in trust, right? Why have them start eating if you don't believe God is going to save them? And what Paul is doing is he's saying, I believe we're going to be shipwrecked, like we're going to run aground, like God said, but we're all going to be saved and you need your strength to be able to to swim to shore. And so we see man's responsibility and obedience partnering with God's providence again. And I love this because he does it in verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And so he says, we should all eat. We should all get our strength. In fact, you know what? I'm going to eat first. And he stops and gives thanks to God in front of these pagan sailors. Uh, It is a beautiful picture. But because of his example of obedience, look what happens. Verse 36. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And Luke here is giving us incredible detail, but he's giving us detail of men that believed God's plan and were executing God's plan because Paul had the faith to share. 
And so they eat and get ready to go. They lighten the load of the wheat, their money crop, because the, if, the, if you lighten the load, the ship can sit higher and run aground further, further towards shore. Make sense? And so they are planning to do what Paul said God would do. I love that. And we miss that. We're like, oh, okay, they're just, you know, doing this for fun or, or because that's what they think is best. No, they are following God's plan. Then we get to point number five. All were saved just as God said just in an unexpected way. And our call is to trust him. All were saved, as God said, just in an unexpected way. Trust him. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, cut them off, left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. So like, well, Paul said we have to run aground. That's what we're going to do. And so they choose to run the ship aground because that's what God said was going to happen. Verse 41, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. They didn't make it to the bay. Partway through or, or to the land. Partway through, they hit a sandbar, a reef of some sort. The boat is stuck won't move, remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. And so again, the plan is threatened. God's promise is threatened. But it's never really threatened because God's promise is sure. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Roman tradition, as we've talked about, if your prisoner escapes, the guard bears the same penalty that the prisoner would have borne. And so they're like, Let's kill them. We can say they're lost at sea. We're good. But the centurion, and you see the trust here and the, the, the a statement to Paul's um, demeanor and how he presented himself. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. The ship's breaking up at this point. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. That is amazing that all were saved, especially since they weren't able to run the ship um, all the way to the beach or close to the beach. They're out there. The waves are still strong enough to be able to break the ship apart. They all jump off and they all are able to swim to land or catch a piece of wood or something to get to land, and not a single person was lost. And God's fingerprints are on every element, even though it was their mistake that got them there. And, and God still used this to proclaim his sovereignty, to proclaim that he is God. But more importantly, he was making sure the gospel would get to Rome. And he was making sure that the church would survive And nothing could stand against it. As we look at this story, it's a really cool story about a shipwreck. But the bigger picture is a people that made mistakes, a people that lost hope, but then found their hope in God's power. And that God saved not how they expected, but what was needed. And I think about that in our lives when there's things that are, are 
um, just we're struggling with, where we don't see God at work, where we don't see how God is going to get us through things, we serve the same God who is just as sovereign and is just as much at work executing his plan. And so I end today with Job 42. Job was a man who didn't understand why, why God allowed what he allowed, who had, had gone through it, fair? And Job says this at the end. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And at the end of it, Job never got his answer to why. And I don't know if Paul got his answer to why he went through all this. But what they both did was trust God. And Job here says, I know that God, your plan is going to to, to be good. No one can stop it. And my complaints are because I just don't have the knowledge you do. I don't have the wisdom and the understanding you do. And so whatever situation you're in, trust God. Trust God. He is faithful and will be there. As we come to the Lord's table today, I'm reminded again that God was going to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. That Jesus on that cross died for our sins and died to give us salvation. And if we turn to him, that forgiveness of sin, that salvation is ours. But God didn't stop working there. God didn't just become hands off when Jesus rose from the dead three days later. He continues to orchestrate the foundation of the church. He continues to make sure that the gospel is unquenchable is the word we're using. That nothing stops it. Because God's heart is for as many people to be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. As many people to come to him as possible. As many people to find salvation in Jesus Christ. And so as we remember the Lord's Supper today, we are remembering the gift that we have been given. We are remembering through the bread, and it's just a symbol of Christ's body, but it's a symbol that he willingly gave himself up for us and sacrificed himself for us. It's broken to remind ourselves of the pain and the agony on the cross and what he chose to do in our place for our sins. The grape juice is a reminder of the blood that was shed as a forgiveness for our sins or for forgiveness of sins. A blood that should have been ours, a blood that was the penalty for sin that Jesus shed in our place. And so every time I drink that cup, I think of God's grace and his forgiveness that I don't deserve. That he paid the penalty for my actions. And so these become statements of remembering what God has done and our trust in Jesus Christ. So as we come to the table, let's remember that God is faithful and God has saved us spiritually and we belong to him. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for such a detailed story of the shipwreck to remind us to trust you, to remind us that no plan of yours can be thwarted. 
Lord, for those here that need hope, I pray that it gives hope because you are a God of hope, a God that says, take heart, watch me work. Lord, and as we we celebrate the Lord's Supper and remembering your sacrifice on the cross, help us to remember that ultimate hope, that we know that when we believe in you, we will be with you for all eternity. Thank you for that, God, in your name.